Good morning, everyone. My name is Frank. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, welcome to Potomac Hills. Uh, we're continuing our series in Mark. Uh, we're in chapter 5 this morning, the beginning of chapter 5. We're uh, from going from verses 1 through 20. So if you would turn there, uh, and as you're turning there, a quick note, we're taking a break from Mark for the next five or so weeks, I think, uh, as we're going to prepare to celebrate the coming of Jesus, uh, you know, over the sort of Advent season. So we're going to be spending the Advent season in Psalms, and then we'll pick, uh, pick back up in Mark at the beginning of the year, which, incidentally, I'll be preaching as well. So you get uh, me for all of Mark 5. So anyways, if you would turn again with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, we'll be reading about Jesus healing a man with a demon. So let's read. They came to the other side of the sea to this country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As they were getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. And, when he, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Diacopolis uh, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, for this story of this man who had an affliction that most of us can't relate to. But Lord, as we look into this passage, we pray that our eyes, our hearts would be open to all that uh, you would have us hear from your word this morning. 
that we would uh, see your power, that we would see your compassion, that we would see how you have delivered us just as much as you have delivered this man from the Gerasenes. And Lord, we pray that we would marvel, that we would rejoice in all that you have done in and through us. We pray that you would meet us this morning and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I wanna start with contrasts. Uh, life is full of contrasts and we tend to order our lives around them too. It's just sort of easier that way. It's not more accurate um, or nuanced, but just sort of easier. And they tell us our choices really. Uh, a few sort of contrasting uh, choices can tell you who to be f- friends with and who to vilify, who is us and who is them. So it's interactive time. We don't do this much, so quick show of hands. Everybody try to participate. I'm going to read off a few contrasts, and you're going to raise your hand for which, one you want to, which side you want to be on. Okay? So the first one, softball, good versus evil. Okay, good versus evil. It should be really easy. Okay, so who wants to be good? Oh, come on, you guys. Okay, and who wants to be evil? Okay, good. Okay, I I knew you were going to do that. Okay, anyways, that's fairly easy. Let's move on to something a little bit more controversial. Captain America or Iron Man? So team, who's team Iron Man? Okay, I see you. Okay, team Captain America? Oh, wow, okay. We're... Captain America congregation mostly, okay, great, great. And finally, the make or break contrast, people who like pineapple on their pizza and people who are sadly mistaken. Okay, okay, okay. sorry, just joking, just joking. Anyways, contrasts are often really helpful. Okay, you can tell I like pineapple on my pizza, don't judge me, okay. Um, contrasts are often really helpful. They, they lack nuance and the world is often not black or white, but And when I talk about contrast, that's generally the first thing that we think about, Um, sort of opposing groups like we just did, sort of pro-choice, pro-life, Republican, Democrat, we sort of pick sides, right? But I find that we actually use contrasts in a different way more often. You see, contrasts help us discern differences between things. That's the whole point of a contrast, right? They help highlight, and, and they sort of help highlight the realities of our own position. So in essence, contrasts really crystallize realities for us, and they sort of bring them home for us. So let me give you an example of this. I went on a mission trip to Kibera, um, which is a a slum in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, I went on a mission trip in 2010, and at the time, there was something like a a million people crammed into about a square mile. Um, And I was quite shocked by the poverty that I saw. So as you walk in, you walk in across the sugarcane field and you walk across uh, what was a door, but they've now used as a uh, bridge over a fairly uh, fast-flowing sort of river. And you walk up and what you come to is you come to mud brick houses with corrugated tin roofs that come down to about your head level. And so you're constantly dodging sort of getting your head taken off by these really sharp roofs as you sort of make your way down these really narrow alleyways. And all the while you're sort of looking down and you're looking up and you're looking down and you're looking up, mostly to avoid destroying your head on the roofs, but also you're looking down because you're sort of waddling as you're walking down these, um, these alleyways because there's a ditch in the middle of, of the pathway. And it's a ditch for sewage 
because they don't have running water. And let me tell you, the smell is amazing, okay? It's overpowering, and, and it's also anxiety-producing because Kabira is a lawless, dangerous place. Um, as I was walking with my team, the pastor was like, oh, yeah, our guides, they're the most notorious criminals in this group so that no one will mess with us, okay? So we paid the, the hardest people in the slum basically to carry all of our stuff. And so we're walking, and we're walking, and we're walking, and we, and we come around the corner, and what I see is legit like a room, about, like a, a space about half the size of this room filled with refuse, filled with garbage. It was a landfill. And we passed at least two more on our way to the church that we were serving at. And this, and if you've ever been to a landfill, the smell there is also incredible, right? And just the filth, the, the, the conditions that these people were living in was just mind-blowing. And what do we do when we are confronted with a, a picture like that? It's only natural to contrast what these people are living in, our brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes, what they're living in, when, what, what they're dealing with every day, all day, with my own experience back home. And so my understanding of my wealth, my privilege, my security really came home because of a contrast that I saw. Okay, and so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about contrasts that sort of bring home these realities. And I think that's a little bit of what Mark is trying to communicate to us in this passage because we come to at least four contrasts that really drive home the reality of Jesus' power and compassion. And so we're going to be looking to find a contrast in power, a contrast in life, a contrast in sight, and a contrast in response. So first, the contrast is in power, where we see uh, the demons versus Jesus. So on the one hand, you've got the demons, right? The legion, they're quite powerful. Remember, the people of the area had tried to subdue this man, and they had failed. And I mean, that makes sense. You've got this uh, feral, naked, crazy dude that is constantly screaming and cutting himself, and so they're trying to bind him so that he doesn't hurt himself or hurt others. And they use what the strongest thing that they have, which are shackles and chains. But with superhuman strength granted to him by the, the demons, he doesn't just escape, but he shatters the binds. Right? He shatters the shackles and breaks the chains. And so when we think about it, if you've ever been in handcuffs and you try to get out of them, that's a lot of strength. Right? And that's also a lot of pain tolerance as well, because that's got to hurt. And so we're talking about an intense power here. And not to mention the fact that the demons had sort of completely hijacked this man's consciousness. We often think that our minds are free. Like, whatever anybody else says, you know, they can't take, take away our, our, our minds, what we think, right? They can't influence, um, they can't force us to think a certain way. But these demons didn't just make them strong. They made him, made him their slave in every way, that they enslaved and took over his mind even. And so these demons are powerful. 
And there's not just a physical power, but also an incomprehensible mental and spiritual power that completely overwhelms this man. So that's the demons on one side. And on the other, of course, you get Jesus. And Jesus's authority is just so clear in this passage. Even the demons confess that he's the son of the most high God. He's clearly got the power. He's clearly got the control. And he comes off as sort of being calm and collected. And so you've got two big powers going at it. You've got Jesus, who's the son of the most high God, and you've got these demons that are superhuman in strength and power and all of that. But it's really not much of a contest, which is what we sort of expect. And we can sort of see that contrast in the way in which the demons are described and Jesus' art is described. So starting in verse 7, the demons cry out with an inarticulate howl and then address Jesus. What have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God not to torment me. So two quick things. The word adjure is a word of command by oath. It's usually spoken in sort of these sort of demon possession types of situations, but it's rarely spoken by the demon. It's almost always used by the exorcist. And so to hear that coming out of the demon's mouth is sort of weird. Okay, and so what he's try- desperately trying to do is he's try this, he meaning the demons, they're trying to gain power over G- Jesus by whatever means they could possibly try. And so they're, they're going to try, okay, well, this seems to have power over me sometimes, so I'm just going to try and throw it back at you. And then also notice that the demons confess that Jesus is the son of the most high God. It's not really an act of worship because obviously demons don't worship Jesus, right? But it is another attempt to gain power over Jesus, because back in the day, there were these sort of mystical like books that would say, if you know the true name and title of um, some spirit or some person, then you could have power over them. And so it's another sort of desperate attempt to overpower Jesus. And it's, in our sort of modern day sensibilities, kind of ridiculous. I can't be like, Dave Silvernail, I command you to, like, walk up here and, like, I don't know, do something. Anyways, I can't do that. No, don't, don't, okay? <laughs> so it, it should just be ridiculous to do that, right? But we sort of have vestiges of this left over, right? When our kids are doing something wrong, what do we, what do we call them? We, like, use their full name. Nathaniel Whaley Wong, you come right over here right now, and, and <laughs> you're just sort of exerting power over them, right? It's the same idea, and sometimes it works with our kids, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, And so uh, then we can sort of skip down to verse 10 and see just sort of the language that is used for the demons. Well, what do they do? They beg. They beg Jesus not to send them out of the country. And so begging is an apt description to what the demons are doing. Because begging has this sense of understanding of of your own inferiority and powerlessness. And so when they beg, they are sort of tacitly or implicitly acknowledging, hey, you are far superior to me. And that they actually have nothing really compelling to say, and so you're sort of reduced to begging. And then, so that's the demons. And on the other side, you've got Jesus again, right? And so how is Jesus sort of described in this passage? And I love it because it's really, really sort of understated. Jesus doesn't really get a whole lot of description in this passage. 
He doesn't really say much. He doesn't actually even do much. Mark simply records Jesus as telling the spirit to come out of the man, to ask the demon's name, and then give permission for the legion to enter the pigs. That's all he does. He just shows up. The guy comes running down to him, so he doesn't actually have to move. And then the, the demons do a lot of the talking. He just says, yeah, come out of him. And the demon's like, no! And then he's like, okay, so what's your name? And then he tells the name. And then the, 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 the demons are the ones that come up with the proposal to do the pigs. And so he says, okay. So it's come out, what's your name, and okay. That's all he says. And that's all he does. And it's delightfully understated. It's like there's, that, there's the quintessential picture of a little kid that's trying to fight like a teenager. And so he's sort of taking wild swings and kicking it with all that's in him. And meanwhile, the teen's just like, come on. And he just sort of puts out his hand on the kid's head and he's just swinging. And it's just, there's like no contest, right? Of course, the teen just doesn't even take this guy, the little kid seriously because all he has to do is hold him at arm's length and there's nothing but just sort of flailing arms and legs happening right there. And that's sort of what happens with Jesus um, and the demons. The, the, the power balance is so outrageously skewed in Jesus's favor, Jesus doesn't really have to do much. And, but, you know, we pretty much already understood all of that. I mean, the demon says that he's the son of the most high God, and Mark starts his gospel with, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so when we think about, and a lot of us are Christians, and we think, okay, Jesus is God, Jesus is really powerful, great. I really expected him to just destroy this demon completely. So what is he highlighting? What is Mark doing? And so Mark is really highlighting Jesus' power, but why? Why? Well, when we take a step back and we look at this story in the context of the overall flow of Mark, we see sort of what Mark is hoping to do. You see, this is a gospel, right? And so this story is about the good news of Jesus going to the cross for your sins and mine. That's the end point of this story. And so in the story, we have a redeemer in Jesus, of course, right? But we need to know something about this redeemer. We need to know that he's, in fact, capable of doing the job that we need him to do, of overcoming sin, overcoming our corruption, overcoming the curse. And so the cross at the end of Mark casts a shadow over everything that comes before it, um, and, you know, so we need somebody to be amazing as our Savior. And so Mark is deliberately trying to lay out for us, hey, Jesus is pretty amazing. And so from last week's passage to the end of chapter 5, we're actually seeing four miracles in three stories. Okay, and we're in the middle of the, the three stories, but we're in, and we're also in the middle of our second miracle. So last week, we talked about Jesus in the storm. And what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus has authority and command and power over the creation, over the storm, over the chaos, right, the physical things. Well, what does this week tell us? This week tells us that he, ha he has power and authority over the spiritual realm, that he has power and authority over the storm in our hearts, in the hearts and minds of the demoniac. And so there is not just a, a, 
a move to say Jesus has power and authority over this thing, but he also has power and over over power and authority over this thing over here too. And next week we're going to see, or well, not next week, uh, the turn of the year, so January, we're going to see that he has power and authority over disease and even death. And so what Mark is doing is he's being very comprehensive and deliberate about sort of grouping stories together. He's saying he has power over nature, he has power over the spiritual realm, he has power over disease, and he even has power over death. And this is the man that goes to the cross for us. And so Mark is really highlighting just the overwhelming power and authority of Jesus for the sake of giving us a powerful Savior and Redeemer to go to the cross for us. But, it's, but Jesus' power never comes in a vacuum. It's never a simple flex of raw power and authority. It always comes in a context, a sort of story context. So we, we've been sort of talking about Jesus' power in the context of the greater story. But even within this story of his interaction with the Gerasene demoniac, there is a context of Jesus, for Jesus' power. And Jesus' power always comes in the context of transforming people and transforming hearts and minds and understandings about him. Which brings us to our second contrast, a contrast in life. It's a sort of before and after. You see, while the, this overarching context is certainly Christ's march to the cross, there's you know, this immediate context as well, again. He's not just calming sort of the storm for kicks and giggles, but he's doing it to save his friends. He's not just casting out the demons for fun. He's doing it to save the man. And so let's consider the life of the demoniac. Let's think about what it would have been like to be like him. For all his life, everyone has focused on the demons, the inhuman supernatural strength, the incessant wailing, Man, he's really noisy. I thought my kids were noisy. This man was really noisy, right? The uncleanness. Remember, he's been forced from society. He's an outcast. He's made to live in vermin-infested caves with, carpet, with, um, with bones for carpet, right? And so his mind is in tatters, but you sort of bet that the demons allow him moments here and there of loose lucidity so that they would, he would know just what's happening to him, to torment him even further. And the little note about him cutting himself with stones is proof of his own awareness of his wretchedness. He's throwing himself on the rocks and cutting himself either in an attempt to drive out the spirits or to end the suffering through suicide. And so he's naked, wild, dirty, bleeding, a sick whirlwind of flailing limbs that could not be subdued. And on top of it all, he's wildly unclean not only being possessed by an unclean spirit, but living among the dead, which would have been beyond unclean. And for a Jewish person like Jesus and the disciples, the horror of this man would have all at once been revolting and terrifying. Imagine you're one of the disciples, sort of acutely attuned to the ritual cleanliness, and as this man runs up, all you can think of is, I have to do this cleansing and this cleansing, and there goes a week of my life as I ritually cleanse. And you just, they start to just sort of pile up the, the, the numbers of weeks that they're gonna have to spend ritually cleansing. And the horror of losing that time and all of 
what it means to be unclean. And you, can, you begin to understand what the reaction to this man would have been. And this pitiful existence is shown for what it really is in the mention of the pigs. Now, everybody asks about the pigs, okay, because it's just a strange sort of note that this herd of pigs sort of goes lemmings and into the sea, right? But the pigs aren't really important. We don't want to read too much into the pigs. They're just pigs. But what they do do is they do give us a window into what the demon's intentions are. As they run down the hill and drown in the sea, it's made clear that the demon's end is destruction, utter and complete destruction. And they want to destroy the demoniac, the man, that they possess completely and utterly. They're going to do everything possible to destroy the image of God in this person in every single way, both body, mind, and spirit. And finally, in the end, they will try to destroy and take even his life. But all of that, every little bit of this man's life, change, changed on the day that he met Jesus. After Jesus, this man was changed, and the transformation is really, truly stunning. Mark takes great care to highlight just how stunning this transformation was. Let's look at verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind. The one who had his legion sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. The contrast couldn't possibly be any more clear. There, this was the demon-possessed man, in case you forgot, the one with the legion, in case there was another demon-possessed man in the region. Okay, and boom, he's seated, controlled, calm, clothed, which is really nice, and talking like just anybody else. Probably is pretty nice even. The before and after are really jarring. Could this even be the same person? And so remember how I said, like, contrasts really bring things home? Well, for the herdsmen and the people who, who came might have heard about this sort of Jesus who was doing incredible things for the lowest of people, right? They might have heard of his healing of the sick and providing, you know, who knows what and all the miracles and and all of that. And they might have had a sense that he was a powerful man of God. Well, after they see this, they know he's a powerful man of God. They know simply by looking at the contrast of the man. And what a double whammy for the disciples as well. First, it's the calming of the storm with a word. And now the storm in the demon form is calmed with almost sort of just Jesus' presence. You can just imagine what the disciples are thinking. They're like, I just saw this happen, and then I see this happen. Seriously, who is this guy? Like, I didn't, wow. With just a simple command, with just a simple word of command and permission, Jesus accomplishes all all that he purposes to accomplish in a radical display of his power. And I think that idea of purpose is important because we tend to just sort of deal with the facts of the interaction, sort of Jesus versus the demon. But Jesus doesn't just see the demons. He sees the man too. And and he's filled with compassion to save him. And so this is where we sort of shift a little bit. The last two contrasts, Uh, The contrasts of power and of life 
sort of focus on Jesus's power and they focus on sort of the outworking of his power. Well, these next two deal with his compassion. And so we're going to talk about a contrast in sight. So let's talk about how people viewed or reacted to the demon. It's not, you know, the plight, the filth, the demons, the uncleanliness, the, the terrible life. That's all anybody ever saw. They see this man and they, they can only see sort of the outward externals of everything. Here is a guy that little children would have nightmares about. He's the guy that people prayed that they would never have to interact with. This was a man who was a terror that people hated. This is a man who was used to his circumstances defining who he was. This was a man who was used to the idea that even the best people, the most well-meaning people, the most compassionate people, they would run from him screaming in terror. But Jesus is very, very different, obviously. Jesus doesn't run in horror or terror. He's not even intimidated by the superhuman strength. No, he has this quiet determination to save this man. Do you see just sort of as we read between the lines of the text, just how committed Jesus is to save this man? Remember, Jesus didn't have to save this man or even drive out the legion. To sort of any upstanding person, this demoniac would have been an embodiment of evil. He didn't do good things. He didn't deserve to be saved. In fact, he had terrorized people in the area, and so it makes sense that this was a great sinner. But yet the Lord Jesus stands up for this man to the demons within him. And why? Why does he do it? It's because he saw the man. He saw the image of God being destroyed in front of him, and he could not let it go. Sure, he saw the plight and everything that everybody else did, but he didn't let it get in the way. He saw one of his children and he took action and he was going to take, he was going to do whatever it took to transform, restore, and save this man. And so he's not just the most amazing person ever with power and authority over the winds and the waves and over the spiritual things and over disease and death and all, of, all that you could imagine. He's the most amazing person ever with power and authority over all things who also sees the man beneath the filth, the man beneath the behavior, the man beneath the sin. And he loves the man in spite of it all. He loves the person in spite of it all. And this is how we're pointed to the gospel. Not in seeing Jesus face down demons, not in... Jesus calming the winds and the waves, but in seeing Jesus saving wretched humans like the demoniac. You see, you and I are just like this demon-possessed man. Sure, we're not full of demons, of course, but we have plenty of evil within us. Evil that at times seems to control us. It's an evil that we often say that we hate, but we just as often just try to mitigate and then live with just like the demoniac. He tried to get rid of the demons, and he failed. And he said, okay, well, I'm just going to live with it because it's out of my control. And aren't we like that just the same way? 
We're resi- we sometimes resign ourselves to sin and sinning because we just don't see a way to overcome it. And so what does Mark 5 have to say about that sin that you just can't seem to shake? That sin that you can't seem to get victory over? What does Jesus' overwhelming power and authority to transform lives say to that part of you that you absolutely hate and know is evil, wrong, or sinful? The gospel says not only that Jesus has the power to transform even the most wretched of lives, to change even the most ingrained sin patterns, but he sees past all of it to you. That's the wonder of the gospel, that in the midst of our wretchedness, in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of our filthiness, the filthiness of our souls, Jesus not only sees all of that wretchedness, but he sees us. And he loves us. It's not just that he sees us, because we can see a lot of things, but that he goes further and he loves us in spite of what he sees. That's Romans 5, 8, that God shows us his love for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. It is at the cross that we see the greatest contrast of all, a sinless perfect savior being crucified. At the cross, we see the horror, the filth, the guilt, the worthlessness of our sins being placed upon the most beautiful, clean, innocent, and worthy person ever. And and then at the resurrection, we see all of that brokenness, all of it being transformed into glorious life. As we try to wrap our heads around that contrast, the reality that we're profoundly and deeply known comes crashing in. And with it, a sense of the immense love it takes to love somebody just like me. And that love demands a response, which brings us to our last contrast in our passage today and where we will, we will end. Look with me at verses... Um, This is a contrast and response, a scandalous grace. Look with me at verses 16 to 20. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Diaclopolis how much Jesus had done for him and how and everyone marveled. So the Gerasene demoniac was a living testimony of the power of the gospel to love the unlovable and to transform and restore them to the way they ought to be. But that love isn't always well received. The responses to this power and compassion are almost polar opposites. The demoniac's response is what we expect. His life has just been saved. He's been been given a gift that boggles the mind. And so obviously he wants to be with the one that saves him. This is how we as Christians hope to respond every time we think about what Jesus has done for us. But the rest of the townspeople, the herdsmen, their reaction is interesting and I think instructive. They beg him to leave. But the big question is why? Why do they ask him to leave? And we don't really get much in the way of a reason. They just 
It's just sort of they beg him to leave, and that's all we get. All we really hear is that they're afraid. But what are they afraid of? Are they afraid of Jesus' clear power? There's a healthy fear that comes when you think about the idea of God and power and authority being right there in front of you. Or maybe they are, they're afraid of losing more money. After all, the herd of pigs was quite large and worth a considerable amount of money. And this isn't a Jewish sort of region. It's a Gentile region. And so they might not want the potential financial cost of Jesus in their midst. Remember, John prayed just a few moments ago of the cost of following Christ. And so who knows which herd of pigs may be next. Jesus might have a thing against pigs. And as we know, sort of this cost of faith in Jesus is significant, just not in the way that we often think. And I think all of that is certainly in play. But I also think that there's this sense of discomfort over the demoniac being restored to health and to society. Remember, this man was a terror. He, could have, he would have hurt people, he potentially destroyed property, and he posed an ever-present danger to the rest of the populace. So there was this sort of ever-present anxiety of whether or not you were going to meet the demoniac. And so he's not particularly popular amongst the people because of what he's done and because of the danger that he poses and of all the bad things that he's done, right? And so, yes, he's under the control of the demons, but that rarely makes relationships better. And so it would have been awkward, to say the least, as the demoniac, after he's been delivered, now he has to reconcile with all the people. The sort of aftermath, after this, or happily ever after, there is something that the demoniac has to do. He has to deal with the fact that he, even though under the control of demons, has, has done some terrible things. And I think there's the rub for me, right? There are just some people that I just don't want to see be saved. The line of thinking goes, how can that guy get into heaven? He's like the worst person in history. How is that fair? God loves him? Sort of if you take it to, the, to sort of the example, how would I feel if Hitler had become a Christian before his death? Ugh. But I don't actually have to deal in hypotheticals. Because serial killers Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer are reported to have come to Christ while on death row. These men are the epitome of evil. They murdered, raped, destroyed countless lives, mostly women. The evil that they perpetrated is unspeakable. They are literally the prime example. They're the, the people that you look to for the definition of serial killers. Dahmer even ate some of his victims. Like, that's just gross. But Dr. James Dobson and Reverend Roy Ratliff, Ratcliffe testify to the sincerity of their conversions. And when I find, found out about these stories this week as I sort of bounced ideas off of the other pastors, honestly, my first response, my first impulse to learning of this was to be skeptical and annoyed. And then I was chastened as I thought through it. You see, these serial killers' salvation was scandalous to me. 
And when I thought about it that way, when I used the word scandalous, it reminded me just how scandalous it was for Jesus to die on the cross. Remember, he's totally innocent and righteous, and yet he bears the full wrath and curse of God upon him for, for sin. That scandal means that grace covers over sin, no matter the depth of that sin. And these men, Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy, would be the modern, closest modern-day equivalent to the Gerasene demoniac. They were evil-filled men that wrought terrible destruction and brought fear to many. And yet they met Jesus and were changed. That's how the gospel works. And while I might not be as evil as Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy, I certainly am still wildly sinful. My sin is still infinitely bad. And... You know, and I say infinitely bad because it's committed against an infinitely good God. But that doesn't even take into account the sin that I do perpetrate against other people, too. And so my own sin is scandalous. And I'm sure that there are folks out there that would be surprised and upset with the idea that God saved me. And I'm sure that all of you could say the same. I'm sure that there are people out there that are not looking forward to seeing me in heaven. And yet grace is given in abundance to those who don't deserve it. It's given to those that don't deserve it by definition. That's what grace is. And so grace is inherently scandalous. It never works the way that we expect. And so I hope that the conversion accounts of Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer are true. I hope that I will be rejoicing in heaven over the repentance of great sinners like them, just like I hope that there will be rejoicing in heaven over the repentance of a great sinner like me. And by the power of Jesus' transforming grace, we, me, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, will be restored, saved, and set free just like the Gerasene demoniac. Let's pray. Father God, we marvel at the wonder of your power, but not just the raw power, but your compassion. Lord, we thank you that you loved the demoniac like you love us, that you saw all the filth, all the worthlessness, all the shame, all the, the terror that we bring to the table and you saw past it to the one whom you love and that you did not stop at anything but you went to the cross for me and Lord I pray that that grace that mercy that reality though the contrast that we see on the in the cross would come home to each of us that we would see the contrast of uh, transformed lives in each of our hearts, that we would see the wonder of your grace. That it would drive us to repentance. And that we would yearn to see 
the worst of people turn to you and be changed by your blood. Lord, as we go, we pray that you would help us. Help us see as you see. Help us to love as you love. And change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And now receive the benediction from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We'll see you next week.